Our second lesson is from the book of Revelation, and uh, it's printed there for you in your liturgy. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, For the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood. Only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh God, open our eyes that we might see Jesus coming indeed as he comes to bring the world to come in the passage we just read. Let our confidence be in your grace and your power to redeem. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One way of thinking about following Jesus in this world is to think of us uh, as being part of a story that's bigger than any one of us is, bigger than all of us are, actually. A story in which we have a serious role to play, a story that's headed towards an absolutely hopeful future, as we just read about here. Now, that should ring a bell for us, um, because that's how Scripture portrays God's work in the world, as working in a great story in which we have our place in it. We are participants in this great work of redemption. And this morning, we are offered a glimpse of the end of that story, the fulfillment of that story in the reading that we just read from Revelation. It's a glimpse that is offered in rich metaphor and deeply symbolic imagery. But what is revealed in this glimpse is an anchor for our souls and reminds us of our grounding purpose in life as Christ's followers. What is revealed is the certainty of God's coming to our world from the future 
in order to transform this world into the glorious world of human flourishing that was always God's intention in creation. What's being pictured here is a world where human beings flourish in love and peace, where each one finds joy in their fellow human beings because God's presence so transforms the human heart so that without an ounce of coercion, human beings will finally love what God loves and love like God loves. There will be no war, not because of a threatening and mighty power that holds an armed truce-style peace over the world like Rome did when this letter was written. That's a hollow peace between parties who really want to kill each other. But the peace that's pictured in this reading from Revelation, the peace of the world to come, is a peace that's made possible because everyone will want what is good for their neighbor. And no one will want something that is not good for their neighbor. So that is the picture of where our story is headed, the story of God's work in the world that we have a role to play in, the story that's bigger than we are, the story that we have a role to play in. That's where it's headed. And that's really what this entire book of Revelation is about. It's about the promise of the world to come. Why is it important to confess that we know where the world is headed? Because it doesn't look like the world is headed toward what we are confessing. That's why it's so important. Because when you look around, it doesn't look like things are headed in this direction. The revelation of John was written from the Isle of Patmos, where the elder John, sometimes called John the Seer, my favorite is John the Revelator, probably because there's a great song called John the Revelator. He's in exile, probably towards the end of the first century, maybe under the reign of the Emperor Domitian. The persecution of the church is just beginning. And these first century Christians to whom this letter is addressed, they were confessing the same truths we do today about the coming of the kingdom of God, about the resurrection of Jesus, about the ascension of Jesus, about the promise of God's world to come. But it looked like Rome was really the one that was winning. Many of them would die as martyrs. They needed to be reminded that Rome's not winning, that God wins, and that they had a place, even if it were martyrdom, to play in telling that story to the world. The book of Revelation, like the other letters to the churches in the New Testament, was meant to be read in gathered worship. To be read in gathered worship, just like we read part of it this morning in gathered worship. Doesn't mean you can't read it by yourself. I mean, it's great beach reading, right? 
No, I think I'll get the book of Revelation and take it on vacation with me. Um, It's meant to be read and gathered worship because it's in worship when we're gathered together around the sacrament of communion in particular. That's where the Spirit meets us so reliably. Bread is broken, wine is poured, and we are mysteriously united to Jesus, to the Jesus who has gone before us in the world to come. There's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. All things are new. In worship, we are taken there. We are taken through that window of grace right there. We see, if only for a moment, we see, and our imaginations are sanctified. We are given eyes to see the secret work of God's kingdom The secret work that from one angle looks like it can't possibly win. We see it truly that it has won and that it will win and that we have a role to play in it. A little sidebar on worship. I went to uh, a couple of community dinners over the last couple of weeks. I think we had... Counting the big dinners with grace, about how many people do we have that were all gathered in community dinners? Like 100, right? Yeah, over 100. Yeah, over 100. That's pretty cool, right? Um, anyway, I went to a couple of those. Why? Because I didn't want to go to just one. Um, and uh, I went. Uh, each of them was life giving, truly. Each of them was life giving. But my circumstances made me appreciate one of them in a unique way because before I went, it was just one of those days. One of those days that was marked by doubts and anxiety. Do I really believe that God is going to bring the world to come to us and transform this world? I don't know. It wasn't seeming possible that day. But then I went to the dinner and encountered God's people, my church family, the people I take communion with each week, the people who remind me of the gospel. And surprisingly, even to me, and I know that this is supposed to happen, but it was surprising even to me that almost immediately my spirits were lifted and I felt my heart fill with joy. The kingdom of God will win in one way That's one way of describing how I felt. And and I felt, by God's grace, that yes, I'm a part of all that. Now the community dinner I'm referring to, it obviously wasn't a worship service, but I'm giving it as an example to you because I think it's important that we talk about the importance of gathered worship. We have a category for what it is that we expect and beseech God to do in our midst. I think it's important to remember that when we go to participate in fellowship like that, that's not just any random collection of people. That's a group of people whose fellowship is made possible and born out of worship together. It has a mysterious quality and energy about it because of that. 
I offer that as an example of what it is that we're to beseech God to do, what it is we're expecting God to do with us when we come to worship. We expect him to intervene in our lives, even as he has intervened in cosmic history, to strengthen our hope and renew our vision of the world to come. That's what we want God to do in this space each week. And anything can happen. Alabama did not come back in the last five minutes to beat LSU last night. Anything can happen. And when we're in this world, we expect God to defy our expectations, to transform our expectations, to enable us to look at the world through God's eyes. And when we learn to read the story of God's work in the world rightly, we're able to bear witness to the truth about God. We're able to bear witness to the truth about God in ways like this. On a day when we had a really great day at work or a really horrible day at work, and on that same day we had the opportunity to comfort a friend in need or perhaps console an anxious child, We know, because we bear witness to God's truth, that comforting the friend in need and consoling the anxious child was most likely much more important than what happened to us at work. We learn to see that helping the poor and the homeless with our community service partner breakthrough, even when it all seems like throwing pebbles in the ocean, We learn to see that that's an important witness to the truth of what God is doing in the world. And the time when we did it and we were just worn out and the volunteer opportunity was screwed up and people that were supposed to be helping us were late, we still know that it was a way to bear witness to the truth and one of the most important things that we did that week. When we realize that Rome is not winning but that God's will to come will prevail. We refuse to let the powers that are in place in our time set our agenda as Christ's followers. And so when we look at the crisis at the border, we refuse to get overly bogged down in the politics of it. But we look for ways imaginatively to be in solidarity with those whose lives are not being cherished with those whose lives are not being loved, with those whose lives that are not being cared for. If the church would just figure out how to speak with one voice, that regardless of the way the immigration issue gets legislated, our responsibility is not foggy. Our responsibility is not mired in obfuscation. Our responsibility is to imaginatively push for care and aid for the displaced person. Oh, may the Church of God find a way to speak with one voice. And when we realize that Rome is not winning, we commit ourselves to opposing those who oppress the poor and the vulnerable, but not in a way that seeks vengeance over the oppressor, but seeks to love and hope even the oppressor because 
the gospel is rooted in radical enemy love, or it's not the gospel at all. And finally, and very importantly, when we confess that we believe in the world to come, we're confessing that we are here on behalf of the good news of that coming world for this world. That's our place in God's story. We are here to bear witness to the truth and the good news of the world to come on behalf of this world. Where we fit in the story is not significant first for ourselves, is significant first for others and for the whole world, especially those who have suffered and are suffering greatly. Indeed, there is no legitimate hope or aspiration that starts with a hope for me or me and my family or me and my family and the people like me who I like. That's not where the gospel starts. The good news of the world to come is only good news for me because it's good news for everyone. And that we bear witness to when we bear witness to the hope of the world to come. Now, I chose this angle to take this morning. And, you know, there could have been many other angles to choose. But I chose the one I did because I'm becoming convinced of two things and they're related. The church today has a weak commitment to embracing our faith as a public faith. And when we do embrace our faith as a public faith, we lack imagination in how we do it. This should not be. And we have a weak understanding of the importance of God as transcendent and sovereign over all history. Perhaps the corollary of this is that we have privatized our relationship with God. We made our experience and feelings of God's imminence so important to us that we've forgotten that the imminence and personal connection with God that we so crave, and rightly so, is true only because of the transcendence of God. It is only God, the transcendent creator, who is able to interrupt history, to disrupt the space-time continuum, and draw us, and indeed the whole world, into God's world to come. Our family recently watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and what a joy that was. It had been a long time since I read the books, and it just felt good to hear some of those amazingly insightful and and eternally true things that Tolkien wrote in his great myth. As I thought about what I wanted to say about the passage before us this morning, I remembered one exchange between Frodo Baggins and his faithful and brave companion, Samwise Gamgee. The outcome of their journey to Mordor to destroy the ring does not look particularly hopeful, but their resolve to see through their responsibility, even to the point of death and failure, if that were to happen, remains sure. Their bond with each other, part of the power of the fellowship of the ring, is stronger than the despair that threatens to rob them of their resolve. Reflecting on their circumstances, they exchange these words. Sam to Frodo, I wonder if we'll ever be put into songs or tales. Frodo to Sam, what? 
Sam to Frodo. I wonder if people will ever say, let's hear about Frodo and the ring. And they'll say, yes. That's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was really courageous, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy, the most famousest of all hobbits. And that's saying a lot. Frodo to Sam. You've left out one of the chief characters, Samwise the Brave. I want to hear more about Sam. Frodo to Sam. Frodo wouldn't have got far without Sam. Sam to Frodo. Now, Mr. Frodo, you shouldn't make fun. I was being serious. Frodo to Sam. So was I. Sam to himself. Sam Wise the Brave. Frodo and Sam think of themselves as being part of a story that is unfolding. The story is hopeful with an end goal that will save the world of Middle-earth and its inhabitants from the evil threat of Sauron. They understand that the story is more important than they are and that the purpose of their lives is defined by the story. On this mission, Sam and Frodo are living their lives for the sake of their world and all who live in it. When the Apostle Paul thinks about where we are in God's story of redeeming the world, he says of us that we are those on whom the end of the ages have come. We have a weighty responsibility on the one hand, a mission of bearing witness to the truth about God and God's love for all people. But though weighty, it is a grace-saturated responsibility. It is gift and not work on our part. Gift from God. Human beings want to flourish. You can count on it. And by God's grace, we have been called into the story of how that happens most fully. And all we have to do is be purposeful and imaginative and eager to share and invite others to journey with us. Weighty, yes. Graced, yes. Hopeful, yes. May God give us the grace and the power to live imaginatively into our story and be so free and so happy to invite others to come along. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.